If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll hear another lecture from our 2019 History Weekend in Chester. Henry VIII has been defined more by his six marriages than anything else. But in this talk, the Tudor historian Robert Hutchinson turns to the last seven years of his reign to reveal a side of the king that we don't see so often. As his book, Henry VIII, The Decline and Fall of a Tyrant, reveals, we find a lonely, vulnerable man played by illness, bankruptcy and thwarted ambitions. Thank you for coming. Um, You may wonder uh, what on earth I'm doing up here. Uh, What is there new to say about Henry VIII? Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Henry is a famous king, England's most famous king, who should never be underestimated, both in life and in death. And recently he's been defined more by his marriages than by he truly was. New research, which appears in my book, uh, reveals much about his physical and mental state uh, in his last years and just how ruthless he had become in eliminating his enemies. So this evening we're going to look at what drove the king during the epic drama of his last uh, seven years of his life, 1539 to 1547. Aside from the break with Rome uh, and a little matter of quite a few marriages, this period covers the most momentous periods in his life. These include what we would recognize today as the brutal genocide he inflicted on the civilian populations in Scotland and northern France, uh, the barefaced fraud of the great debasement of England's currency, and his reckless borrowing that plunged his realm into bankruptcy and left the Tudor economy in ruins for years to come. So although they're fully discussed in my book, I'm going to pass over Henry's uh, last three marriages and focus on his final battle against disease and geriatric decay 
and how he ruled and his impact on how he ruled. So this, ladies and gentlemen, is an unfamiliar Henry VIII, a depressed, vulnerable, frightened, and lonely old man for whom time was rapidly running out with none of his cherished childhood dreams of battlefield victory and personal glory achieved. And of course, he's also obsessed by the need to continue the Tudor dynasty uh, and was determined to pass on a secure realm to his precious and precocious nine-year-old uh, Prince Edward, his son and heir. And to achieve this, he was prepared, as always, to brutally sweep away anybody who stood in his way. Now, we're all aware of the iconic uh, images of Henry. This sketch above me, slightly threateningly above me, uh, by Hans Holbein the Younger, was probably commissioned in 1537 to mark uh, Edward's birth. Uh, the old ogre stands in an insufferably proud and arrogant pose with his father, the founder of the insecure Tudor dynasty, behind him, a regal ghost from a not-forgotten past. Looking at that picture, it is no wonder that Henry was the first English monarch to insist on being addressed as your majesty. And this is the surviving port a portion of a cartoon drawn for a gigantic dynastic mural at Whitehall, uh, lost in the palace fire of 1698. It's unsubtle, unashamed propaganda, even down to the size and prominence of the royal codpiece. Tiny holes in the paper done in creating the mural are evidence that originally Henry's legs were portrayed uh, much longer, and they've been shortened to make him look slimmer and more muscular. And over the years, this image was reproduced in portraits commissioned up and down the land by those anxious to demonstrate their loyalty to their sovereign. Now, by 1540, uh, the king no longer resembled Henry Holbein's imperious figure. Henry had changed dramatically, physically and mentally. He was now a geriatric monarch, his life a living nightmare of pain and disease. The chronic osteomyelitis in his legs forced him to walk with a staff from 1540, and two years later required him being hoisted to his first floor Whitehall apartments by a primitive lift, a, a, a chair precariously swung up to the first floor and his secret study by sweating yeomen of the guard who really were worried about not only their lives but their jobs as well. By 1545, he was carried around in a kind of sedan chair called the King's Tram, lugged by six sweating attendants. The 1542 inventory of royal possessions uncovers Henry's hidden vulnerability. Three walking staffs, all fitted with whistles in the top, uh, are listed as, as are two leather trunks or loud halos used for shouting. Now, the king was very rarely alone. 
But now he needed to be able to summon help in an emergency by frantic blasts on uh, his whistles or bellowing through his shouting trunk. Clearly, he dreaded falling. And as he now weighed more than 28 stone, and he had weak legs, required considerable help in getting him back on his feet. From 1545, his failing eyesight, he bought uh, wire-framed spectacles from Germany, 10 pairs at a time. He loses his spectacles like I do. Um, his failing eyesight dictated that he had to give up signing state papers, something which he never enjoyed doing anyway. Instead, a wooden block um, with the royal signature carved in raised letters uh, was impressed on documents and the imprint um, inked in. Of course, there had to be safeguards against misuse. Document signs with this dry stamp, as it was called, were listed every month for his approval. But after a year, he even stopped examining that list. He had handed over the levers of power to those around him. His famous uh, tantrums uh, were not only a legacy of the Tudor genes, following his father's insistence on him leading uh, a cloister-protected life after he became crown prince, uh, Henry began to suffer what is now um, known as narcissistic behavior disorder, a condition that develops in early adulthood. It's characterized by exaggerated feelings of self-importance, a chronic lack of empathy towards others, and when boxed into a corner, the victim lashes out violently. You may well recognize that some of today's political leaders <laughs> suffer from the same disorder. In Henry's case, his conviction that he ruled with God's divine approval intensified the symptoms, and as God's deputy, when Henry Tudor prayed, he always knew God listened. In the 1540s, his mental condition deteriorated further. He was frequently depressed. He suffered violent mood swings, became increasingly psychotic and paranoid. This coupled with his gross obesity, his moon-like face and slow healing wounds indicates, I think, uh, that he was suffering from Cushing syndrome, a, a rare endocrine abnormality triggered by excessive levels of the hormone cortisol. So how did he suffer from this disease? How, where did it come from? Recent medical research confirms that traumatic brain injuries, like the one he suffered in the Greenwich Joust in 1536, cause such neuroendocrine effects. So old age, disease, and frailty had crept up on Henry like a furtive thief in the night. But he still had much to achieve, before death finally claimed him. Now, Henry had grown up with thrilling tales of England's glorious past, such as Henry V's defeat of the French at Agincourt. He desperately craved a preeminent place in the annals of English history and was obsessed by a monomania to win martial glory against France and fulfilling his predecessor's traditional claim to the French crown. Unfortunately, 
his track record in the battlefield glory stakes was one of single signal failure. His solitary claim uh, to such fame was the Battle of the Spurs against the French in 1513. And this painting, commissioned by Henry shortly afterwards and displayed in the Whitehall Palace, was one of the earliest bought for the royal collection. In reality, this was no battle. Merely a large-scale skirmish when a French force resupplying a besieged town was ambushed. And that uh, small triumph was three decades before. Now, his brother monarchs in Europe were Charles V of Spain, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Francis I of France, known to his subjects but not to his face as old long nose. And you can see the reason why. The king knew full well that any alliance between them spelt trouble for England, but needed one or other as an ally to achieve his aims. Uh, in passing, ladies and gentlemen, I have to say that for a man so jealous of his sovereignty, the concept of the European Union would have been total anathema to Henry VIII. <laughs> in 1539, Pope uh, Paul III planned a holy uh, crusade against the schismatic and heretic Henry and urged France, Spain and Scotland to launch a simultaneous three-pronged invasion to depose the king and return England to Rome's religious authority. Earth bulwarks, ditches and barriers were hastily prepared to defend against invasion. But these, of course, could only be temporary structures, so an ambitious plan called the king's device emerged for a chain of coastal artillery forts which eventually became greater in cost and in extent than those erected against another French threat uh, three centuries later. Although the threat of invasion vaporized uh, later in 1539 like incense in the Vatican, 73 forts and blockhouses were built uh, in 1539 to 47 at a cost of nearly 231 million pounds in today's money, like Camber Castle in East Sussex. And the, much of the funding came from the Court of First Fruits and Tents, which was established in 1540 to collect the clergy's cash previously sent to Rome, and the dissolution of the monasteries. And some of the castles, like Camber Castle, uh, were constructed, were built from recycled monastic uh, materials. The other bulwark in England's defences were the sudden hole, uh, wooden holes of the Navy Royal. Uh, Henry uh, launched a large-scale ship construction programme coupled with rebuilding older holes equipped with additional artillery firepower like the Mary Rose. Uh, and with the shores of England protected, the king could now embark on his cherished military adventure against France to add honour, glory and lustre to Henry VIII's rather fragile reputation as a warrior king. But conflict is an expensive business and notoriously difficult to budget accurately. The king embarked on a widespread campaign to fill his war chest, beginning in 1542 with a secret pernicious debasement of the Tudor coinage, and he coupled this with relentless taxation of his long-suffering subjects, sales of royal property, and the assets of uh, dissolved monastic houses. 
And finally, he began borrowing exorbitant interest rates from foreign bankers. But this didn't stop imperious demands for ever more cash until his death and the grievous damage he inflicted on the economy would take two decades to resolve. For centuries, the precious metal content of English coinage was sent at 92.5% purity. Henry's debasement reduced it to 25%, from 92 to 25, by adding copper to the gold or silver melt. Uh, moreover, a new coin called the Testoon, worth a shilling, was introduced in 1544 with the head of the aging, frowning Henry on its obverse. Daily wear of those testoons and of groats, which were worth four pennies, removed the silver coating to reveal the copper beneath, as in this coin. Henceforth, Henry's cheated subjects nicknamed him Old Copper Nose. Before the king could invade France, he had one outstanding issue of homeland security to settle his troublesome neighbour to the north, Catholic Scotland, which enjoyed an ancient mutual uh, treaty with his old enemy, France. Therefore, he must neutralise the threat of the Scots, supporting their allies, and even though they'd been defeated at Solway Moss in November 1442, the threat remained. Henry cunningly proposed a marriage between his son Edward and the baby Mary, Queen of Scots, born just before the death of her father, James V. But of course, in Anglo-Scottish politics, nothing goes smoothly. And the Scots failed to ratify the marriage agreement uh, and a peace treaty, and frustrated at his, their duplicity and prevarication, the king decided to teach them a lesson they wouldn't forget for generations. An earlier incursion led by Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, had failed ignominiously to inflict the level of death and destruction which Henry required. So he appointed Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, as commander of a new army to smite Scotland. And Seymour's orders still exist. In April 1544, he was ordered to put all to fire and sword and to burn Edinburgh, so there may remain a perpetual memory of the vengeance of God upon them for their falsehood and disloyalty. Sackleith and Burnet and all the rest, putting man, woman and child to fire and sword without exception, where any resistance is made to you. And he demanded specific vengeance to be uh, wreaked upon his bete noir, Cardinal David Beaton, the self-appointed Lord Chancellor of Scotland. Spoil and turn upside down the Cardinal's town of St Andrews, sparing no creature alive, especially those in friendship or blood allied to the Cardinal. Hartford readily obliged, burning Edinburgh and Hollywood House in what he called a jolly fire uh, that ranged for two days. He returned triumphant, having destroyed three castles, one abbey, a nunnery, and 32 towns and villages for the loss of just 40 men. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. 
Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Henry allied himself with Charles V for his invasion of France. War was declared in August 1543, but his preoccupation of defending his northern border had delayed the joint offensive until the summer of 1544. The Allies' grand strategy uh, was for England and Spain to each field 42,000 troops, with the imperial forces attacking through the Champagne region from Flanders, and Henry would march eastwards along the River Somme through Picardy towards Paris, along the very same roads trod by Henry V's heroes at Agincourt 130 years before. But would he be able to endure the rigours of campaigning? His burgeoning body meant that his armour was adjusted to allow for his increasing girth with this uh, armour made for him in 1540, which is now in Windsor Castle. Two pieces of steel, each two inches wide, was riveted on each side of the back plate and uh, to make space for him to actually wear this armour. The foot armour weighed 88 pounds, and that's a heavy burden even for a fit, agile man wielding a sword or a pole-axe, particularly on a hot day. The reality of Henry's age and infirmity dictated to any sensible person that he should be an observer of the fighting rather than leading his men into battle. Moreover, that march, his osteomyelitis flared up, confining him to bed for eight uh, days, and his recovery was slow. His doctors begged him not to go to France, or at least direct the war from the safety and comfort of English-held Calais. But Henry was determined to fight alongside his men. Like an old war horse, he could scent the acrid reek of spent gunpowder, and he longed for the martial beat of the drums and fifes the billowing banners of war, and all the grim paraphernalia of disciplined military slaughter. His fellow protagonists in the war were hardly in great shape themselves. His ally, Charles V, was a martyr to gout, exacerbated by his fondness for oysters, pickled eels, spicy sausage, and Flemish beer and his enemy, Francis I, after enjoying the favours of his seven mistresses, suffered grievously from syphilis. The army royal crossing this channel to Calais with no clear idea of what their military objectives were. After several postponements, the king followed them on the 14th of July, 1544, leaving his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, as a very capable queen regent of England. Those childhood dreams finally seemed to have come true. How Henry proudly rode his great courser at the head of his army with a Tudor battle flag of England 
green and white horizontal bands with a red cross of St. George in the, in the canton, flying bravely before him as he marched out of Calais. He had not worn armor in the field since 1513. Indeed, he may not have donned armor since his jousting accident in 1536. But then, a violent thunderstorm and torrential rain uh, greeted the English column, column as it reached Marquise, 20 miles from Calais. It is one thing to suffer discomfort while campaigning, but it's something quite different to stand knee-deep in mud and watch your expensive armor rust around you. That downpour may have been a cold douche of reality uh, and changed Henry's mind about his grand strategy. By the 20th of July, the king had unilaterally abandoned the Allied plan to march on Paris to seize the French crown. Instead, he would besiege uh, Boulogne, south of Calais. Despite all his martial swagger, Henry wouldn't allow his army to deploy too, too far from his ships, and he wanted to be, um, merely capture the threatening French fortresses on the borders of the Calais Pale, the march on Paris. Uh, the Duke of Suffolk, commanding one division, had already cut off Boulogne and was busily digging siege trenches. The Duke of Norfolk, never a happy general, was investing the, the town of Montreal. And as with the invasion of Scotland, the English policy for their captured territory in France was callous and brutal. The aim was to depopulate the Bolognois region and burn its crops in preparation for the arrival of English colonists from the south coast of England. They also brought with them bubonic plague and sweating sickness, and these diseases, together with starvation, killed as many as 50,000 in the Bolognois uh, in 1544. For eight weeks, Henry's bomb artillery bombarded Boulogne, firing 100,000 iron and stone shot at the castle and fortifications. Catapults also hurled incendiary weapons, and you can see some of them at the top of uh, this contemporary engraving. English miners burrowed beneath the castle walls and placed gunpowder charges in their tunnels on the 11th of September, the castle blew up spectacularly. The town surrendered, and a week later, Henry formally took possession. About 2,000 inhabitants had been granted safe passage to leave, but they hadn't trudged more than uh, a few miles in the pouring rain before they were attacked by English soldiers who stripped them off their clothes and looted their possessions. And most of them died from hypothermia. And Henry's enjoyment of military glory was soured by Henry V signing a separate peace treaty with France on the very same day that he rode triumphantly through one of Boulogne's battered uh, gates. So he was now fighting France alone. And as I said earlier on, war costs you money. Expenditure was escalating out of control. Uh, the French and... Uh, the Scottish wars in Henry's last years cost more than one billion pounds of today's money. He had borrowed, as I said, almost a million from the Antwerp bankers at uh, 12 to 14 percent interest, interest rates, and by his death, 800,000 pounds worth of royal property had been sold. His frequently his exchequer was frequently empty, and by the end of 1545. 
uh, government spending was running £1 million more than available uh, revenues. The treasurer of the King's Chamber uh, hid from creditors after he had been run out of London because he had no money to pay the court's bills. Inevitably, Francis I sought revenge for the death and destruction inflicted on the fair face of northern France. He assembled a fleet of 200 ships. Spanish Armada was only 120 in 1588. 200 ships with an army of 16,000 men for an invasion of southern England. French warships would defeat Henry's navy off Portsmouth, capture the Isle of Wight, which would then be swapped for Boulogne. They arrived in the Solent on the 18th of July, 1545, the ship's mast resembling a forest that had suddenly grown around the northern edge of the Isle of Wight. The next day, 17 oared galleys pushed forward through the spithead to the shallow banks now known as No Man's Land, intending to lure the large English vessels into an area where they could be run aground and then be battered to pieces. By mid-afternoon that day, Henry was standing on the upper ramparts of newly completed South Sea Castle to watch the naval battle. The tidal flow had reversed and the English fleet was, had managed to get out of Portsmouth Harbour. Second in line was the Mary Rose and after firing one broadside, she suddenly heeled to starboard and went down in minutes. And in this contemporary uh, painting, you can see two masts remaining above water, one still forlornly wearing St. George's flag. Survivors cling to the masts, one frantically waving his arms. Bodies of drowned crewmen float in the water. Henry was aghast, crying out, oh my gentlemen, oh my gallant gentlemen, drowned like rats. And his mortification continued. The French landed 2,000 troops on the Isle of Wight, uh, on the evening of Tuesday, the 21st of July, and occupied the eastern side of the island uh, for some days. And eventually, fighting fell into stalemate and the French sailed away, achieving little of military consequence other than humiliating Henry. The following year, with England still deep in bankruptcy and the French also suffering poverty from war costs, both sides were driven to the negotiating table and the resulting peace treaty decreed that Boulogne would be returned to the French in 1544, 1554, I'm sorry, after paying two million crowns in retribution. And the arrears in tribute due to Henry would be paid by annual payments during his lifetime. And of course, he didn't have long to live. So it was quite a good deal as far as the French were concerned. So Henry had something to smile about. Uh, and there was something else which made him that awful old face crease in a, in, a, in, a, in a smile. His frequent forays into the clandestine world of kidnapping, extortion, and assassination haven't really had the kind of attention they deserve. For example, he planned to kidnap his nephew, James V of Scotland, in an attempt to force an acknowledgement of English suzerainty over Scotland. He also tried to abduct sundry papal legates, like uh, poor old Cardinal uh, Mark Grimani, legate to Scotland, whose ship avoided a high seas ambush, and he later escaped a kidnap attempt uh, by fleeing Glasgow in disguise. 
In May uh, 1546, David Beaton, Cardinal Beaton, was assassinated in his castle in St. Andrews. Henry had agreed to fund the conspiracy as long as he wasn't publicly implicated. As his involvement, he stressed, with sublime hypocrisy was not meat for a king. At dawn on the 29th of May, 17 assassins broke into the gatehouse. They killed the porter, hurled his body into the ditch, and the noise brought Beaton out of his chamber, and he was promptly hacked to death. His mutilated corpse was thrown out of a window and suspended in midair, tied hand and foot uh, by a pair of sheets. And this was an object lesson to anybody who messed with Henry Tudor. His greatest bet noir, of course, was Cardinal Reginald Pollock, the always the arch tra uh, traitor to Henry, who fought tooth and nail defend Holy Mother Church. And Henry had planned a number of assassination attempts against him. In uh, 1544, uh, Henry hired uh, the ruthless Italian murderer and mercenary Cardinal, uh, Colonel Ludovico Delami to undertake uh, the dirty deed. Such a man at such a time is to be cherished commented the King's Secretary, Sir William Paget, And the assassin was posted off to Venice in 1545, as Paul was in Italy about to attend the Council of Trent. And this is a portrait of him, which uh, we found in the Academia, still there in Venice. And uh, it was uh, part of a painting commissioned by the Venetian magistrates in 1545, the year Delami got to Venice. It's probably the most expensive wanted poster in the history of criminology. Uh, but unfortunately, Delami uh, failed to kill Paul, uh, despite the efforts of the Venetians, uh, the uh, Vatican Secret Service to assassinate him, uh, and his unfortunate proclivity for murdering other people in private vendettas infuriated the Venetians. Each time they sought his execution, uh, their hand was stayed for fear of annoying their valued ally, Henry VIII. Back home, the king sought to pass on a secure realm to his son, free of influence of those who supported the old religion. Uh, he moved to destroy uh, their noble, uh, um, the, uh, the Howards, who were leaders of the conservative faction, the unbearably snobbish Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, was arrested on purchase evidence conveniently provided by Sir Richard Southwell, one of the more unpleasant characters in the Tudor lexicon of crime and corruption. And, and Surrey uh, uh, was found guilty of treason, and his father was also locked up in the tower and um, condemned to die. But as far as Henry was concerned, it was now time to meet his maker. He suffered another indisposition of his legs, but rallied after his doctors cauterized his legs with hot irons to burn away the infected tissue. I don't want to put you off your dinner tonight. Um, those around him scrambled to snatch property and wealth before he died. The doctors, his doctors knew it was high treason to predict the king's death, and they were terrified to warn his, their patient that he was dying. On the 27th of uh, January, 1547, 
Sir Anthony Denny, groom of the stool, who looked after the king's most intimate bodily leads in life, undertook this unenviable task. He entered the, uh, the Henry's bedchamber that evening and found the king conscious. And eventually, Henry agreed that he should see Thomas Cramner, Archbishop of, of Canterbury. But first, he said, I will take a little sleep. Those were Henry's last words, and shortly afterwards, he sank into a coma. Now, Cramner was at his palace at Croydon in Surrey, and it was a freezing day, and it took him a long time to get up to Whitehall. He didn't arrive there until after midnight. He clambered up on the great worn-up bed and whispered into the unconscious king's ear. Cram Cramner urged him to give some sign or token to demonstrate he still put his trust in God, even through the mercy of Jesus Christ, and there was no response. Cramner grasped the king's hand, and suddenly the dying king did wring his hand as hard as he could. And those presents uh, took this as a conclusive evidence the king still felt, uh, still dwelt firmly in the faith of Christ. Now, he died shortly afterwards, probably around two o'clock in the morning of Friday the 28th of January 1547, probably from kidney failure. He was 55 years and seven months and he had ruled England and Wales with a mailed fist for 37 years and 281 days. The Tudor dynasty would continue. True, the succession was fragile, with no insurance of a spare male heir, and the new king would reign until the age of 18, supported by a fractious Regency government. After two wives divorced, two more executed, another dying after childbirth, and a terrible litany of stillbirths, miscarriages, and postnatal deaths of his progeny, it was something of a miracle that the Tudor line lived on. How did Henry want to be remembered? Well, he planned a magnificent royal tomb almost from the start of his reign. Uh, it was going to boast of his power and might for centuries to come, with no one left to gainsay its, gainsay its proud message uh, in marble and metal. Uh, in this grandiose project, Henry was thwarted. Uh, he just as he was thwarted in his choice of wives, thwarted in neutralizing the Scottish threat, thwarted in his ambitions to win back the crown of France, and thwarted in his quest for a decisive uh, battlefield victory. He had plans for that uh, megalomaniac too. This is a conjectural drawing of about in the 18, done in the 1880s of what the tomb might have looked like when it was eventually erected in St. George's Chapel, Windsor. Henry had quite casually snaffled great chunks of, Henry, uh, of Cardinal Wolsey's tomb after his downfall in 1529, um, including the black sarcophagus on which the Cardinal's effigy was supposed to rest, and the angels carrying... Um, the uh, candles, which were supposed to be on the tomb. And uh, the tomb was destroyed by the Republican government uh, in 1646. Henry's great bronze effigy uh, was melted down to raise money to pay 
the garrison of Windsor Castle. The four giant candlesticks, which came from Wolsey's tomb, Henry had appropriated, um, went to, to uh, Gaunt Cathedral. And the four angels from Wolsey's old tomb were incongruously placed on the gatehouse at Harrington Hall in Northamptonshire, now a golf co- uh, club house. They disappeared, and years later, V&A bought them uh, for five million uh, in 2015. In 1804, plans were made for a new Royal Mausoleum behind, behind, beneath, I'm sorry, uh, Henry VIII's tomb house. And his monument's last vestiges were, were swept away and the black sarcophagus made for the Wolsey, utilised by Henry, was recycled once again, this time for Nelson's tomb in the crypt of St. Uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. So Henry's plans were, were uh, uh, thwarted and uh, even his, his destruction, his planned destruction of, of uh, Cardinal Pole. Royal protection for Ludovic here, the army, uh, ended at the, uh, the king's death, and he was executed uh, between the twin granite pillars in the Piazza San Marco in 1547. Because uh, the Venetians are very status conscious, the Necrolegia, which is kind of a obituary role of noblemen who have died, records that he was beheaded by order of the most illustrious council of ten. And so this figure who has emerged from the murk of Tudor history, Henry's gangster, uh, had been finally driven from this world. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. That was Robert Hutchinson. His book, Henry VIII, The Decline and Fall of a Tyrant, is available now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events.